1357, France was 20 years into the Hundred Years' War, an endless military conflict with England where the two nations fought for control over each other's land. They built two large towers within view of the Seine in order to help defend Paris. Before the century was over, a total of eight towers had been constructed, with walls between them to create a single, cohesive building. This was known for the next 400 years as the Bastille. Initially, the Bastille was a fortress of military defense, but its purpose changed throughout the years. It was used sometimes to protect royals, sometimes as a place of executions, and eventually it was used as a prison, a place where the autocratic French kings of the 17th and 18th centuries would lock up anyone who crossed them. The Bastille was thus a symbol of the monarchy, of the old regime, and of the oppressive kings that plagued France. In the eyes of French revolutionaries, it would have to be the first thing to go. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 60, The Storming of the Bastille. This episode is part of our series on the French Revolution. If you haven't already, start by listening to episode 59, Ancien Regime. All right, getting to today is something that I find myself thinking about all the time, actually. So I want to ask you, and that is, is there a luxury item or a luxury purchase that you would never make, even if you had the money? So the answer is yes. Um, I, I also think about this kind of stuff a lot. And I am loath to pay money, even if I have <laughs> piles of it, for... And this is going to sound broad and like weird, but for like technology. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't like, and I, this all goes back to the, uh, the MP3 player I got in like 2002. Cause I got this MP3 player and it was by RCA. He doesn't even exist anymore. The company. <laughs> and it was awesome. And I thought I was the coolest person of all time. And it had a little slot in the back for an SD card. And I saved up all my pennies and I bought a, a 32 um, gigabyte memory card for it. Oh, that must hold. have been expensive. It was. And it could, At hold, the time. It could hold, yeah. Um, and it could hold like, you know, 12 songs. And I was like, what man doesn't want to be me and what woman doesn't want to be with me <laughs> with this MP3 player. And then in like six months, it was garbage. It was it had been so far surpassed and then like the iPod came out, you know, it and so I outmoded. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm jaded about the fact that technology advances so quickly oh, and that yeah. I, and I am, I'm pretty, I, I learned a new word recently, a skin flint. Have you ever heard that word? No, I haven't. I think that is a very old timey word for a, a cheap person. <laughs> a what um, person? A cheap person. A che- like like a spend thrift. Oh, yeah, exactly. A skin flint. So, um, but so when I spend money, it's like, I want to know that this thing's going to work out for me. And it bothers me when like I buy a new laptop and it costs like a thousand dollars. And then in three years, it's going to be taking up space in some junk drawer somewhere. So even if I had the money, like, I don't think I know for a fact that I wouldn't buy like a big fancy, like the biggest, newest, flattest TV. Mm. Because in three years, 
it's going to be worth, you know, you could buy a brand new one that's got more bells and whistles for anyway. That is, it's clearly like a bugbear of mine. It bothers me. So because of that, I cling to really old, like I, I have my technology that I have and I am going to ride it into the ground. <laughs> um, the phone that I currently have, which has been my new upgrade, is like five years old and it was my brother's and he's like the battery on this thing is toast i have to get a new one and i was like i guarantee you it's a significant upgrade from the one i've been using and it was so i've made peace with it but i even if i had a million dollars i don't think i would be you know buying the newest laptop or cell phone or anything tv because i'm just i'm jaded oh i admire that and you know think of all Think of how silly it seems all those people in the early 2000s who spent like 10 grand on a flat screen TV. Yep. And now it's like, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. You go to Costco and for $600, you can buy a flat screen TV the size of a queen mattress. Yeah, exactly. And then, and if you go out and do that, just be warned that in three years, there's, we're not even going to be using screens anymore. Everyone's going to have a (laughs) projector that costs a thousand dollars. I'm bitter about it. That's a really good point. Okay, that's a good one. Yep. My answer to the question is, I'm being serious, almost every luxury purchase is something that I'm not really interested in. Okay. I think I am also kind of cheap in the in the sense that, like, I don't have a lot of, you know, valuable things, but a lot of what is deemed by society to be, like, worth a lot of money, I think is kind of stupid. So, like, high fashion... Like you said, high technology, iPads, um, maybe a yacht would be nice, but like, I don't know, it's a lot of upkeep um, and, you know, like really expensive jewelry. This is just stuff that like, I don't know, yeah. I'm not really into, you know, it's like a mindset thing like that just doesn't compute in my brain either. Like, why would I want a Rolex watch that costs? Exactly. Yeah, I find that to be so impractical. I do think that there are things that I would spend money on that matter a lot. For example, I think having really nice wood furniture is worth the expense Mm, than going to Ikea for some, you know, dumb thing. Yep. But I do have a clear answer to this besides I hate money. Like (laughs) there is one that sticks out above everything else. And I think the way I would differ from most people is my idea of a dream house is really very different from I think what a lot of people would do if they won the lottery because the like huge mansion that's kind of extravagant like Palace of Versailles that doesn't really appeal to me at all Mm -hmm. and when I think of my dream house what I picture is actually more a nice plot of land than it is like a super nice house my my dream house it would probably be like five percent house and 95 percent the land around it mm-hmm. yeah i think that's what i'm most interested in seeing so for a house i just it would need to be you know well furnished and everything but it doesn't need to be big and i don't think it even needs to be expensive so you need like a you need like an estate in the in, in outside of richmond with great tracts of land that's exactly yeah mm-hmm. you picture nail on the head and that's the thing <laughs> is like that is probably expensive but if I, you know, if you go to Beverly Hills or whatever and you mm. get one of those houses, that doesn't speak to me in the same way. You yeah. know, I think yep. a lot of those are 
too lavish. They don't really, you know, they're just kind of froofy and it's just not me. I totally And I don't think that having 10,000 square feet is a benefit when it comes to indoor space. I think that's a curse. I totally agree. Just think of all the sweeping. I mean, I guess at that point you're not doing your own sweeping, but like I know, but the idea that you would ever feel lost in your own house <laughs> is odd, or that you would ever hear an echo or feel kind of vacant. Those those are things that I don't think is nice, you know? You should totally. feel comfortable and cozy. I totally agree. Okay, Race, first of all, I'm trying out some new comedic material, so I have a joke. Oh, no. See if, let me know what you think. <laughs> okay. And the joke is, how many French countrymen does it take to storm the Bastille? I don't know how many. The answer is 100. One to bring the key, and 99 to bring wine and cheese. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> um there's an old um, in like the antique firearm world. There's a joke, and yes, there is antique firearm humor. Um, <laughs> the joke is, uh, it's an ad listing, and it says, "For sale: French infantry rifle, never fired and only dropped once." <laughs> pretty. That's pretty good. LOL. <laughs> so we are talking today about that. Uh, famous event, the storming of the Bastille. And this is continuing on, of course, in our series about the French Revolution. Last episode, we talked a lot about the tensions that are building in old regime France. You'll remember the working class at this point was really fed up with the feudal system because the peasants worked for their lords and it, they lost all their money to taxation and that they didn't have any ability to improve their quality of life. And then the nobles were also fed up because they found that the feudal system wasn't working for them. They couldn't make any money by working because that would dishonor their position. But merchants in the third class could make a killing selling all kinds of goods in the trade economy. Everybody at this point is angry with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, who are the monarchs of France, who appear to just be profligate spenders in a time of debt and famine. And everyone is also feeling inspired by ideas of the Enlightenment, which was encouraging democracy, liberty, equality, things among the people as opposed to absolute autocratic power and class division, which were the hallmarks of France at the time. So that's all the tension that's building. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at the exact moment when those tensions broke. I mean, literally broke. But before we do that, I want to build the tension even further. So <laughs> there's nothing I like to do on this podcast more than build tension. So here we go. <laughs> so a couple things are happening when we get to the year 1789, which is when the Bastille was officially stormed. And one of those things is at this point, France's national debt is out of control. And, you know, that's when the country is then it can recuperate through taxation. And there's a few things specifically that are causing these costs. France was involved in the Seven Years' War. That was very expensive. That, by the way, is known in the United States as the French and Indian War. But in Europe, it was the European front was called the Seven Years' War. 
And France also got involved in the American Revolutionary War. Um, and that was also expensive. But the French at the time, they were they were kind of excited to see the American Revolution because it looked like all of these things that the Enlightenment was pushing for, America was actually daring to do it. And they were, you know, taking action instead of just theorizing. Uh, they also could not pass up the opportunity to embarrass their longtime rivals, the English. So when it was a question of do we join or, you know, do we just sit back and do nothing or do we help America push off the English? The answer is we're going to help them push off the English. Um, but that was very expensive. And the finance minister of the time said there's absolutely, absolutely no way we can afford to engage in this. And when he argued that, he was fired. So that was an unpopular uh, opinion for him to have, even though he was really just pointing at the money. Um, so the debt built over time, you know, from these wars especially, but also from gradual expenses, because the French crown was spending a lot of money. And the debt was never canceled out with new revenue, because France's system of taxation had a couple critical flaws. One of those flaws is that it was unevenly and inconsistently carried out. So the way that taxes were reclaimed wasn't even like a consistent procedure and it wasn't always done, you know, efficiently. Another thing is that there were a lot of tax exemptions. We kind of talked last time about how the um, privileged classes, the uh, clergy and the nobility, they had a lot of exemptions and they didn't even have to pay taxes but it's the wealthy classes who had more money to be taxed. And so France was kind of missing out by not taxing those classes. And then another critical flaw is that the crown himself, Louis XVI, had no power to control taxation. The crown only had the control over the spending. And the only way to increase taxes was that the king would have to call a meeting of the estates general. And the Estates General is a meeting of the three different estates that we talked about last time. Again, this is the clergy, those who pray. This is the nobility, those who quote unquote fight. And this is the peasantry, those who work. Those are the three estates. So the only way to increase taxes was to get the Estates General to meet. And the Estates General was kind of like a equivalent to the English Parliament. Um, except that Parliament had a lot more power. You remember at this time, Parliament had been gradually taking power from the king, whereas in France, the Estates General wasn't doing that. Um, some people argue that the Estates General could have eventually become something like the English Parliament if it had actually just met more often. But the only reason that it didn't meet more often was because the last three kings that we've seen, Louis XIV, 15th, and 16th, they were absolutist kings. They ruled with autocratic power. They didn't call par parliament. They were calling all the shots themselves. So years went by and the Estates General was never even called. In England, parliament had the control of both the spending and the revenue. But in France, those were separated between king, the king and the Estates General. So the king could control the spending but the estates general could control the revenue. This would kind of be like if you had a friend, imagine like a friend, you don't live with this person, it's just a friend, but you have a setup with them where you don't have to work, 
but your friend does. But the friend doesn't have to pay for anything and you're going to buy everything. So you're the one calling all the shots on what we're going to spend. And then the money is being made by your friend. Hmm. That sounds okay. You know, if your friend doesn't resent you for <laughs> you having the easy job and just going to the store while they do all the hard work. Uh, but yeah, maybe that would work out, I guess, if you had a close relationship with that friend and if you were meeting regularly to figure out, you know, how much money you have and exactly what you're going to buy and everything. You'd have to really be in close confidence, I think. Um, but as we have been dancing around now for the previous two episodes, this is not the kind of relationship that Louis XVI had with his subjects, and he was not well-liked. So... You can imagine this is creating more tension here because Louis is spending and spending and spending. And the only way to get is to tax the people and change the system of taxation. But Louis didn't want to call the estates general. So that wasn't going to happen. So the national debt reaches unprecedented numbers. And my question is... Um, and maybe anybody listening knows the answer better than me, but I always wonder why is national debt a real problem? I think about when I was in high school, I had a friend in high school and we had the very cool and not nerdy at all habit of consistently checking on the national debt. We were very <laughs> curious to see what that number was. And you can go to the like debt clock and it's continuously ticking. Right. And in 2007, when we looked at it, we were watching it climb higher and higher and higher. Uh, this is when George W. Bush was president. <laughs> and eventually it reached $9 trillion. And I, we were shocked. It was like, how do we have $9 trillion in debt? And I remember we uh, celebrated. I burned a mix CD for my friend and we called it the $9 trillion mix. <laughs> oh, boy. Say. Yeah. Again, like I said, not nerdy at all. <laughs> uh, if you're wondering, now in 2022, the figure is 29 trillion. So we've increased by 20 trillion in the previous, you know, 20 or so years. Wow. No, not 20 years. How long has it been? 11 or 12? I don't know. But um, so, yeah, the, the national debt's a lot higher now than it used to be. And my question is, is that bad? You know, like if a person gets into 29 trillion dollars of debt, the bank is going to come for them and they're going to lose everything they have. But when a nation gets into $29 trillion of debt, what happens? You know, at some point, does the U.S. go bankrupt or, or what's, what's the end game here? And that's what I've always wondered. By the way, I'm not an expert in macroeconomics at all because I didn't find it <laughs> nearly as exciting <laughs> as micro. So when I was in college, I really studied microeconomics. But what I'm guessing with national debt, the real problem is national debt becomes a problem when it ruins the reputation of the nation yeah. and when people don't have confidence in the money system. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I was going to say was, I mean, eventually your currency is going to be devalued because... It's going to be devalued, yeah. Because it's like, what do they even have, you know, if they're right. just only in debt. Yeah. So we can see this in practice with what happened with France, because France is a tangible example of a country that had too much national debt and did receive a consequence as a result. 
So what happened is they accumulated so much debt that the lenders that were starting to lend money started demanding higher interest rates. And eventually the kind of interest rates that France was getting were double the interest rates that other countries like England were able to get. Specifically, England usually got about 3% interest rates and France had 6%. In time, they weren't even able to get loans at all. The nobles and the powers that be that were investing in the French crown were just kind of scared of what was going to happen. And they started to just refuse loans altogether because they didn't trust it. So that's another problem because King Louis XVI has this spending economy. He's spending a lot of money and now they don't even have loans to give them the cash for it, which essentially means, you know, they're broke. By 1788, France owed an unprecedented 4.5 billion livres. And that was just astronomical. It was a number that had never seen, never been seen before. By the way, an interesting strategy that they adopted in order to um, kind of have more traction with lenders is they ironically spent a lot of money on like lavish things, you know, like wearing nice clothes and throwing lavish parties and things like that to make it look like they had a lot of money mm -hmm. and build trust in the economy. But this backfired because not only did it waste a lot of money doing that, it made the crown look cruel and unjust by spending all this money in a time period when the peasants were literally without any food. There were even rumors that Marie Antoinette had ordered for one of her rooms to be paved with diamonds. And that isn't actually true. She never did ask for that. But the fact that it was a rumor that was believed is an indicator that things are not well in France at this time. If you've got yeah. people, you know, spreading lies about how the queen is paving her floor with diamonds, that's a problem. Yeah, that sounds like a, like a George Costanza level of planning. Like, we take all the money that's left, we spend it on really fancy suits, and then they'll <laughs> think that we have a ton of money in the bank. That's, I mean, that's complicated. That is exactly George Costanza. That's a good summation. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So something's got to give. And clearly the only escape route at this point is they have to raise taxes. They just do. They don't have any more money at this point. So for the first time in 170 years, Louis XVI calls the Estates General. And that was just huge because the Estates General is a meeting of all classes of life. You have the clergy, the nobility, and the peasantry all being invited to come and they're going to meet and, you know, have counsel with the king. By the way, I don't know what it's like to um, only have a meeting once every 170 years because <laughs> anyone who was at the previous one who has any knowledge of how things go is since gone at this point. So, right. like, do they even have the key to get in the building? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> My great 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 grandfather had the key, and I don't know where he put it. <laughs> like, can someone read the minutes from the last meeting? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any of these people's names. <laughs> so he calls the estates general. This is the clergy, the nobles, the peasants, but not all the people from each estate come. That's too many people. So each estate elects delegates. 
and the clergy has their own set of delegates, the nobles have their own set of delegates, and the peasants also get to elect their own delegates to, to go and argue for their case. And I thought an interesting thing was that some of the delegates of the peasant class were actually members of the nobility and the clergy, but they had been, they had wanted to run as a delegate for the um, peasant class and had promised to fight for them. And so they represented them when it came to the Estates General. Huh. So it wasn't just the peasants who were at the Estates General. There were also members of the other classes who were fighting on their behalf. Because there were three estates, it was easy to run into gridlock because each estate had one vote. And so depending on how things went, the other two estates could always veto the third one if they didn't like what was going on. And this was especially a problem for the peasant class because the clergy and the nobility were like the upper classes. And so if it came down to the interest of the lower classes, it was easy to get a majority that blocked them out. Hmm. But gridlock was not going to be a solution here. They're out of cash. They need a solution. So everyone kind of realizes, I think maybe subconsciously, that they're going to have to cooperate. People are going to have to make compromises. Otherwise, nothing's going to get done for this meeting that has literally never been held in the past 170 years. Louis XVI calls upon each estate to write a list of grievances. And if I know anything from watching the town hall episodes of Parks and Recreation, <laughs> that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. That's sort of like but, if you were to go on Facebook and be like, okay, everybody come back here tomorrow and tell me all the things that are bothering you. Exactly everything that's bothering you. And that's exactly what he does. He's telling the country what is wrong in France, which... The fact that he doesn't know is kind of a problem, but, you know, he's trying. Yeah. And so each of the classes writes their list of grievances. And there's so many grievances. I can't get into all the little ones because a lot, of, I mean, they really did bring everything. But I'll give you an example from each one. The clergy prepares their list and they say, we are so tired of bishops holding more than one diocese. How is that relevant to the matter at hand? I can't tell you. The clergy, I guess that's what they're really upset about. They did not want bishops holding more than one diocese. Like, huh. okay, guys, we get it. The peasants, their grievances were very tangible and very current. They wanted a fair voting system because in this estate's general, the peasants are 98% of the population, but they only have a third of the vote out of three votes, you know? Sure. So they want a fair voting system and they wanted lower taxes for themselves and they wanted higher taxes on the other classes. They wanted to remove the exemptions that the other classes were having. And they also really wanted the price of bread to go down. And the price of bread at this point had doubled. A, a loaf of bread was twice as expensive as it used to be. And there were complaints that the, the quality of the flour was really low and food in general was just not good. So lots of problems with the food economy. But of the three estates, the most shocking list of what we're going to agree to, what we're interested in doing here at the meeting, comes from the nobility. Because the nobility, they actually agreed that they were in a position that needed to be changed. 89% of the nobles 
thought that, yeah, maybe the tax privileges aren't fair. And maybe we should let commoners into noble positions based on merit rather than base, base, being based on birth. So they were agreeing that like the old system was not fair and that it was out of date and it was unjust. So the Estates General moves forward. They immediately reach an impasse. So <laughs> King Louis XVI like gathers everybody in. He sets up this really like fancy hall and it's it's done very extravagantly because this is supposed to be a meeting that's held you know once in a century it's a huge event for louis to even be holding it as a big deal and they decorate the hall with paintings of historic french kings like clovis and charlemagne and great kings of the past who are supposed to be looking down on the meeting you know giving their blessing so it's a very fancy affair. Again, they're spending a lot of money to do it. And the first thing he does is we, he says, let's everybody do a head count. So um, nobility, tell me, tell me how many delegates you have, and clergy, how many delegates you have, and peasants, how many delegates you have. But immediately, the third estate, the peasant class, refuses to do this. And they say, this is not fair. This is not what we want. We demand to have a fair vote. And they call for the whole thing being done in a singular body rather than the three estates. They want to dissolve the three estates. Oh boy. And they say there should be one vote per delegate. And that's huge because there were only three votes. You had to vote by group previously. And now they're saying, no, the groups are not a thing anymore. We're not doing this whole thing by estates. We vote as a nation, not as classes. Yeah. So they establish a body called the National Assembly, and they invite other estates to join in. They say, this is the nation of France. We are not separated by class anymore. Everybody is welcome, and we're going to vote in a fair way. And they actually get a lot of delegates to join from the other two estates. Not everybody, but I think they're able to sway a good amount. Crucially, they also, at this point, claim sovereignty over France. And this is going against the sovereignty of Louis. So for anybody wondering what's the French Revolution, there it is. It just happened. <laughs> the National yeah. Assembly has just said, we are France. We have the power of sovereignty. The king does not. How do you think Louis XVI took this? <laughs> he did not like it. And he refused to acknowledge it. He dismissed the National Assembly, quote unquote, as it's just a phrase. It's just a phrase. And he kind of was like, kind of just not, you know, admitting that it was even real. And unfortunately for King Louis, he also made the mistake of not really attending all of the meetings at this point. You know, the king kind of needs to be there. <laughs> but he didn't attend all the meetings because tragically his son was dying of tuberculosis. So he spent a lot of time with his son, you know, while he was on his deathbed, et cetera. But that doesn't look great, you know, because yeah. you're supposed to be at the meeting. So that's kind of a tragic coincidence, honestly. In time, Louis comes around to the idea. I think he realizes he's in a bind and he gives in to the National Assembly and he totally yields and he calls on the remaining delegates in the now defunct first two estates to fall in line and join the National Assembly. And that's huge. It looks like we're done. It looks like France has had its revolution. Everything's over. 
there were political commentators from other countries who were kind of watching the whole thing and they were going to write news about it. And many of them even left France at that point and went back to their own countries and said, the revolution is done. France just had a transition of power. However, at the same time, Louis is still around and he starts amassing royal troops and he has them walking around patrolling France. And no one really knows why he's doing that. Is he going to take the slang down or is it going to get violent? So the answer to Tyler's uh, cliffhanger is things did get violent. (laughs) And (laughs) I think that um, if you were to ask most Americans, tell me something about the French Revolution. I think of the few facts you could pull out would be, wasn't there something called the Bastille and didn't some people storm it? And um, that is still commemorated today in in France, Bastille Day, which is July 14th. And um, that was really the flashpoint that uh, most people, historians, thinkers point to as this is the French Revolution really beginning. This is it. Kind of like the... um, um, well, sort of like the American Revolution, there's kind of multiple po- points where you could say, no, this is where it started. Like you said, Tyler, when they voted and it was like, oh, it looks like there's been a transition of power. Was that the revolution? Right. Um, <laughs> and so s- similar with American history is like, well, it's when they declared independence. Well, no, it's when they, you know, the first shot was fired at Lexington Concord. But um, regardless, the storming of the Bastille is is certainly kind of an iconic, if not the iconic um image of the beginning of the french revolution the bastille itself is a building it's um a medieval fortress that at the time would have stood huge and was like a noticeable hulking shape over the parisian skyline it would have you know this isn't some government building somewhere this is this is a part of the skyline Hmm. um would not be easy to miss it had eight towers each of those towers was 30 meters tall so this is a very big building. Um, and spoiler alert, if you're headed to France, this building no longer stands. <laughs> but it was um, it was very big. In its day, it, it had been an impressive military installation. It was built during the Hundred Years' War in kind of preparation for the idea that the, uh, the English might invade France and come over here. And so we need these big, fancy towers. And this was, um, you know, to wa- be watching for an English invasion coming from that direction. Um, the eight towered style. And if you Google a picture, you can kind of get an image of it. And um, it became very influential, this design. And the image was widely copied. And you'd probably seeing it would be like, oh, yeah, I've seen castles with kind of that general shape. Very impenetrable, not beautiful in any, um, you know, castle kind of sense, but very um, fortified and well protected. Um, However, by 1789, the time that we're discussing now, with advances in cannons and just kind of the way that um, Paris itself had changed. Um, this was no longer um, a building in its military prime that had passed. And it was, um, you know, there was other ways and um, places that France would defend itself from invasion. So this was kind of an antique building sort of at this time, um, despite not being a military powerhouse any longer, it was still a very strong fortified building. So that made it a great prison. Um, and, Um, During Louis's reign, the Bastille was holding um, 
Louis's personal prisoners. So towards the end of its kind of life in Louis's reign, um, these were Louis's personal people that were locked up under what was called a lettre de cachet, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Don't at me. Um, which is just pronounced or is just uh, translated as a letter under royal seal. And so these were like, you know, basically handwritten instructions from the king, um, an arrest warrant, essentially. Um, and so while it didn't hold hundreds of prisoners or anything at the time that it was um, stormed, it only had seven pr prisoners locked up inside. But it was a juicy target if you're looking for like a symbol or looking to attack the center of like a capricious, vindictive kingly pow power this is that place it really symbolizes kind of the um you know the wanton prosecute or persecution and prosecution of um people it would have been would have held political prisoners and dissidents and whatnot um and um its glory days as a prison were passed when it was stormed um but there was something else that was of great importance or interest to the revolutionaries which was gunpowder there was gunpowder in the um within the bastille at the time so they went for prisoners for kind of the symbolic effect but also they went for gunpowder and we'll, we'll get more um to that in a second interestingly the bastille also would have been holding at this time and throughout its history books books were being kept prisoner here louis was trying to keep you know even ideas behind bars in some ways um, it was used as a store for illegal goods things that were being seized by the crown um, under a form of the lettre de cachet kind of system. And that would have included banned books and illicit printing presses. Those would have also been things that were locked up here. So again, kind of a, just a low hanging fruit if you're trying to strike a blow at um, the prince who's, or the king who's kind of a big jerk. This is also the place um, that is associated with the story, the myth legend of the man in the iron mask, um, which is a, uh, movie from the 90s it's a story that gets told it's you know related to the musketeers and whatnot um and the man in the iron mask is really a great emblem the story itself of the bastille's place in french history and kind of why people maybe would have stormed the bastille for symbolic reasons um this guy the man in the iron mask whose identity we still don't even know to this day he was arrested in 1669 question mark maybe 1670 like nobody really knows mm. um you know who could who could possibly know when this guy was thrown into prison for the rest of his life um he was kept in various prisons including the bastille for 35 years um if you're asking who was he what did he do did he do anything um exactly we don't know history doesn't record that and this was a time when that wasn't really um, anybody's business. If the king wanted to lock you up and, you know, keep you sequestered away, rotting in prison, that was something that could happen. Um, this was the whims of the kings, um, of the king, no checks on the power, no justice for somebody who's just kind of scooped up and thrown into prison. So that wasn't contemporaneous with the storming of the Bastille, the man in the story of the man in the iron mask, he would have, um, you know, would have no longer been in the prison 60 years, um, earlier. But it is kind of, you know, that shows you sort of the, the symbolic place that this uh, great big kind of dungeony building would have had. So on July 11th, days before the storming itself, the king, um, in kind of that buildup that Tyler talked about with all of the voting and the what's going to happen and is this a transition, he dismissed a man named Jacques Necker. And he was a head advisor that was trying to broker peace between the king and all of the people with the estates general and trying to kind of smooth things over. And the king was like, you're out of here. I'm firing you. 
Um, and it's interesting how little kind of changes in politics in that that's often a red line that you'll hear discussed. I mean, that was like the, um, the was it Saturday Night Massacre of the, um, of the Watergate years? And like um, there was talk of that during the Trump administration of like, well, if if the attorney general gets fired or, or if the you know special counsel Mueller is taken out, then this is like really seen as as mm. a as a particularly egregious blow. And so that's often kind of a red line. And that was sort of what happened here. Like you're dismissing this person whose job is to kind of be, you know, uh, some sort of a gatekeeper or some sort of a of a. Um, of an escape valve or trying to negotiate the peace, you're dismissing that person. We're taking that as, as a, you know, a bridge too far sort of a thing. Um, so when this happened with um, the, the dismissal of Mr. Jacques, um, this caused people to pour into the streets and protest. This was a big deal. Um, and this of course led to clashes with, with authorities, with the soldiers and the police and whatnot. There were several small kind of skirmishes that have names and we know where they happened and stuff. And they basically amounted to rocks being thrown and um, some kind of lower scale violence, not like actual battles or anything. But the people were in the streets and they were very angry. Um, because of this, the citizens were kind of bracing for a backlash. They had been, you know, speaking out of turn, <laughs> um, for lack of a better, uh, a better phrase. They were pushing back against power and they were like, surely you know, this, this is going to turn on us and we're going to um, be punished for pushing back against the king in this way. So that meant that on the, day, on, the, on the day of July 13th, the day before the storming, large bands of citizens were roaming the city looking for any arms and ammunitions that they could find. So swords, spears, even better if it's musket and ball and powder. Um, in order to defend themselves from an assault, a kind of retribution, a pushback from the um, palace that they expected to come at any moment. They just knew that in these, you know, neighborhoods where they were um, fighting back and pushing back and rejecting all of this and rioting, that the, the hammer was coming down. So there were people out looking for um, weapons to arm themselves against tyrannical power. On July 14th, so the next the next day after these mobs were kind of or large bands are roaming looking for weapons, um, angry citizens attacked the Bastille. Now, authorities had known that such an attack was possible, if not likely, given the unrest in the city, the growing tensions and the fact that there was gunpowder inside. Um, so the drawbridges were actually lifted to isolate the Bastille and help repel attackers. Um, an interesting fact about this, um, the Bastille itself at this time, because it wasn't really a, you know, it wasn't the, the Fort Knox or like a nuclear missile silo of the time. It was um, kind of past its prime in some ways. It was being guarded by um, a special kind of contingent of French um, soldiers that were like the ancient guards. So basically they were old soldiers who couldn't do anything else they were too old to be in active duty or whatever so it's kind of like an honor guard or like soldier emeritus status um, these were the people guarding the bastille not ideal if you need to go to battle to have like the you know the aarp of soldiers there with you but um that's sort of what they what they had and um so despite the drawbridges, despite the fact that it is a pretty well fortified building, um, when these people attacked, 
the crowd of them that gathered it was large it was very unruly and it was insistent it wasn't going away the guards did seek to repel the crowd that had gathered and they actually killed about a hundred of the people who were there rioting but that did little to deter um, as a matter of fact it probably inflamed the rest of the group that was there and the citizens in the street were just too many to keep away forever and so a white flag was raised so the the fortress basically surrendered itself and said you know we give up we know we can't win this fight um the crowd entered seven remaining prisoners that were found inside were released um and interestingly just by not much the um writer and kind of infamous figure now uh the marquis de sade would have been in the bastille around this time but had been transferred just before um this storming oh. of the bastille itself but this the remaining the prisoners were released the um the powder was absconded with and the bastille's governor a man um with a name that i will definitely pronounce correctly which is bernard rene de Lunay, uh he was killed by the crowd he was beheaded his um head was put on a stick and paraded through the the crowd and um, the Bastille was taken in a great, certainly a great symbolic blow, um, if not terribly, you know, militarily significant. And not a lot of, you know, the king's soldiers were were destroyed and not a big, um, you know, strategic place was won. But kind of the heart of, of um, the monarchy's symbolic power had been struck at. And this led to other, you know, um, this is where the, the ball started rolling. The people in the street realized um, you know, we have the power to push back. There had been other things that had happened before this. They had seized kind of a, an important hotel and faced a little resistance, which kind of gave them the, um, the crowds, the revolutionaries, the encouragement to go ahead and think maybe we could go after something like the Bastille. Um, but that's the, the storming of the Bastille. We've got a, a group of angry citizens going in and um, taking over this building in the name of um, what they would have called, you know, freedom, fight, uh, the fight against tyranny and um and on this occasion they won the people in the streets took over and it was a great blow for the um against the crown and as i said to this day bastille day is um celebrated as you know kind of the french fourth of july um and i know that this is such a cliched thing to say but it, it is so true that History is written by the victors and our perspective on all of this really comes down to um, who wins or what perspective kind of wins the day um, as to how we view these people who, you know, broke into a government building and chopped somebody's head off and we're like, mm -hmm. this is ours now. Um, that I, I, I don't know. I just couldn't escape that thought as I was reading, like, you know, every, um, and I think maybe that's part of the reason why I sort of sometimes struggle to like wrap my head around the French Revolution. Like, okay, was this a really good thing? Should, who should I be rooting for here? Who am I rooting against? And I think part of that is because the history, you know, whether which side of the good guy, bad guy line you kind of come out on on this often is determined by what happens right afterwards, right? So if you go mm -hmm. in and you take over a government building and you chop a head off and you, you parade the head through the streets, if that leads to what is at least widely or somewhat widely considered to be progress or like something that we want, then it's like, good, we're glad that head got chopped off and that those citizens bravely took over that building. Um, if it 
doesn't lead to something that is, you know, desired, then it's, it's lawlessness. It's, it's, you know, horrible violence at the hand of a mob who couldn't, you know, meet mm-hmm. in a room and, and speak their minds in a civil manner. And like I said, that's kind of a hackneyed thing to say, like, oh, how would this have gone differently if we, what if we think about it from the you know, the king's perspective? But it really is, I think this is a good opportunity, at least for me as an American with very little emotional ties to this and not enough historical understanding to know, like, like I said, well, who's the quote unquote good guy? Who, who on paper have I been told my whole life that I need to root for? And it puts it into an interesting perspective, like, well, you know, when we talk about the citizens rising up and overthrowing the tyrannical British government in the colonies, typically it's like, yeah, go freedom, go America. That's how we started. And we all like this narrative and, you know, um, it's a grand old flag. But when you take away kind of knowing what the result was and you just say, look, a bunch of citizens storm a government building and there's bloodshed that Mm -hmm. on paper is not necessarily great. And I would say, not usually not great right like that's not how i typically want decisions and government uh things that to happen and so i don't know i was just that i kept pondering on that as i was reading about this and looking at it it's just it's kind of a good opportunity to reflect on you know when is a revolution a a revolution when is it mob violence when is Mm -hmm. it a civil war right like um you know the american civil war would it be called who who would would have or would still have and help us call it a revolution rather than a failed civil war you know it, it really comes down to semantics the difference between a coup and you know a demonstration and um freedom of expression and a revolution and the you know the dawning of a new day it all is very very context dependent and you know just really t- depends on who you're rooting for I think that's a great point. And I think, um, you know, the obvious perspective that we can give from our podcast, having just talked about the English Revolution, is you look at the English Revolution and it's like, well, they didn't chop anybody's heads off. Oh, my goodness. They literally did. They cut Charles I's head off. But (laughs) in the Glorious Revolution, when they deposed James II, it was bloodless, you know. Right. They didn't have to do all of this. And so you wonder, is that always possible? What was making it specific for France that they needed to do it this way, you know, or is it just an accident of history and it could have been done without killing anybody? Right. Um, I think it's fascinating looking over, you know, the series of events we've just discussed over 1789 and how, there is such a miracle that has just happened that I I can't even like believe that it's real, which is that the peasants and the nobility work together. Yeah. Like they actually broke down that system of feudalism and they collaborated and they established something new that I can't even believe that. Like if you told me it has that ever happened in the history of anything, I'd say, no, it hasn't. Yeah, because the peasants had no leverage, but that's the thing. They did have leverage and the nobility classes were tired of their system, too. They wanted to change. I think that's just such an interesting turn of events that if it hadn't, you know, if they hadn't had the help of the nobility and the clergy, France may still just be living the same life that it 
was back then, honestly, right. because King Louis didn't have an incentive to do anything different. And the issue of the debt caused everything to come to a head. You know, thank goodness they ran out of money because I think that helped provoke it as well. Right. So they ended up taking the Bastille down within the next couple of years. They took it down brick by brick. If you go to France today, you can see La Place de la Bastille, which is like a, a monument to where it was. I don't know how, I don't know when they put the monument in, but you can go see where it was. And the keys of the Bastille were distributed. And one was actually given to George Washington as a gift. Oh, wow. And if you go to Mount Vernon, you can see the key of the Bastille on display in his house. Hmm. So the Bastille had been stormed. At this point, the National Assembly now has sovereignty over France. King Louis XVI doesn't have any power. And the question on everybody's mind is, what are we going to do about these monarchs? <laughs> and, you know, the English example was, we're going to keep them. We're going to coexist with our monarch, and they're not going to have as much power as they used to. But that was France's question was, are we going to do the same thing? So we will take a look next time at what France decided to do with its monarchs when we talk about Marie Antoinette. No footnotes today. However, in preparation for the next episode, Race and I are going to watch the 2006 movie Marie Antoinette, directed by Sofia Coppola and starring Kirsten Dunst as the Queen. If you have the time and are so inclined, feel free to join us in watching sometime before next week. This will be the first time that either of us has seen the movie, so while we can't give a firm recommendation just yet, all we can say is we've heard great things about it. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.